0: n-e-t-s-u-i-t-e dot com slash w-t-f (amation] all right let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fuck nicks how's it going i'm mark maron this is my podcast jan Wenner is on the show today he is the uh, co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine. He was known for conducting the Rolling Stone interview in the magazine and he gave dozens of talented writers their big breaks. He also co-founded the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's got a memoir out called Like a Rolling Stone. I got, I got a copy of that and I was given the opportunity to talk to him, not knowing how I felt about him exactly, but knowing that he was, he's like, he, he's like the, the prototype baby boomer. Guy who went through the full arc of boomerness, you know, starting with st- yeah, the the publication of what was essentially a music magazine, but was sort of riding the crest of the subculture, all the way into cocaine fueled insanity, and into corporate selling of uh, of Rolling Stone. It just the full arc, coming out late in life, having two lives, and essentially two bit different he's just he's a consummate boomer however you want to take that and he knows it but you know it's also rolling stone magazine how many of your heroes wrote for rolling stone magazine how many of your heroes were profiled in rolling stone magazine how important was rolling stone magazine to you as a kid i mean i'm 59 how important pretty fucking important right i'll say so a couple things tonight i'll be in livermore california at the Bankhead Theater. And tomorrow Friday, I'm in Carmel-by-the-Sea, California, at the Sunset Center. You hear me? It's going to be a few of us. Whatever, man. Just knocking it out. Just doing the work. I'm just a road dog. Road dog. But I would like to talk about the movie I'm, uh, I'm in that's coming out on Friday. To Leslie. A lot of you remember me talking about this. I shot this during covid I was kind of uh, uptight about, you know, having to do an accent and, you know, taking a risk. But uh, I did it. It took a lot of cajoling by the director, but I did it and I locked in. It's a heavy time, man. And we shot this thing on film. He shot it in like three weeks on film. And, I'm, you know, it was a very funny experience. I think I told you about it, about, uh, you know, trying to figure out if I'm going to do an accent, meeting with the dialect coach because it was a Texan accent, and there are several, if if any. Some Texans don't have accents at all. The uh, the dialect coach went with Lubbock, gave me you know a bunch of videos to watch, and they were all of Mac Davis talking. Mac Davis, the singer-songwriter and actor, uh, who I think has since passed, was the best example of Lubbock, I guess. And uh, I studied Mac Davis. I studied Mac Davis deeply. And I made a key for myself that she sent me, uh, on the paper of annunciation, uh, pronunciation. But the movie, to Leslie, which is uh, a raw, gut-wrenching movie with Andrea Riceboro. I play opposite Andrea Riceboro, who is an just a fucking acting wizard, a genius actress. So the movie is uh, opening in theaters tomorrow. It's also available to rent on digital on-demand platforms. And it's... Uh, it's getting some good feedback. I was told that Howard Stern said some nice things about me. He and his wife enjoyed Too Leslie raved about the movie and about me and about uh, Andrea. Stephen Root's in the movie. Allison Janney's in the movie. Andre Royo's in the movie. And uh, I don't know, man, it's exciting. It's exciting because people are digging it. And that's uh, that's what you want them to do. And listen, if you have any questions For me, about the movie or anything else, actually, you can contribute to our next Ask Mark Anything episode for full Marin subscribers. There's a link to submit a question in the episode description. Just go to the episode notes on whatever app you're using and click on the link for Ask Mark Anything. Send me a question and I'll answer it. I guess I just talked to you guys on Monday and I'm just trying to deal. Had a rotor guy... Roto-Rooter guy, or do you still call him that? The guy snaked my drain, and hasn't been done in a few years. It needed to be done, and it, there's just that moment where I come up and I'm like, "How's it going?" He's like, "Well, I think uh, I think everything I got out is here. Do you want to look at it? Do I want to look at what I've lost? Do I want to look <laughs> at you know something the length of an arm composed of my hair?" i don't know do i i know i'm losing my hair a bit but i didn't know that much that's like a, an entire being but uh yeah exciting it is exciting it's exciting to get your uh, drain snaked isn't it <laughs> yes yes it is oh my god shout out to my father and his wife rosie how are you barry how are you dad how are you old man What's happening with you? You know, after he heard me talk to him on the last show, I talked to him uh, the other day on the phone and he was just uh, so impressed with my word usage. I mean, he's beside himself. He's like, I don't know how you talk like that. I'm like, I've been doing this a long time and I think about things. He's like, I just don't get it. I could never do that. It's one of those beautiful moments where in this sort of mild haze of, of mental issues and uh You know, and and him uh, sort of being a little more open somehow in a way uh, that, you know, it's nice when he can determine that I'm a separate person from him that does different things, not just some kind of strange psychic appendage or actual limb. It's it's nice when when he realizes in his self-absorbed way that like, oh, my God, you're a you're an entirely different being than me. Yes, dad, I am my own man. I am my own man, dad, with my own, with my own lexicon, with my own vocabulary, with my own thoughts. I am that guy, different than you. I hope you're having a good day. So Jan Wenner is here, was here. We, we hashed it out. We talked a bit. It was good. His memoir, Like a Rolling Stone, is available now wherever you get books. And this is me talking to Jan Wenner, who I didn't know was Jewish. how are you man good mark good to see you (laughs) you know i got the book i got two signed copies of the book they usually send galleys i didn't get those but i got two signed copies like two days ago and i'm going through it but obviously i grew up with the magazine, I grew up knowing who you are, and I, you know, I kind of went through the book, and you know, I, there's a lot of stories in there. But like my, what I was curious about right out of the gate, since the Rolling Stone interview was such a thing, like what what determines whether a Rolling Stone interview is a good interview? What do you, what were your standards for that? Well, I think this
1: interview was based in the first place on the Playboy interview, which right. at the time was this long, definitive, in depth personal profile a serious very serious kind of interview as opposed to every other kind of profile and then also there was something called the paris review interviews with writers right in which they talked to them about their craft and how they wrote yeah they write in the morning the afternoon right (laughs) all this kind of stuff professional trade talk really yeah and i just thought a combination of the two right with these people who are really legitimate musicians yeah you know, like I mean, take Jerry Garcia, for, sure. or anybody, we either legitimate musicians, so how they're what they've listened to, who influenced them, who right. shaped their music. And then who are you as a person and as a thinker that makes you write this stuff and take this attitude, and yeah. approach? So it was meant to be a deep dive into into the craft, into the craft in somebody's head, you yeah. know, and you'd wanna we would restrict it really to people who we, I thought
0: were thoughtful sure. enough
1: it deserved that lengthy examination well you know not everybody did
0: obviously right well yeah i mean surprisingly you know depending on you know most people are people and they have stories to tell but in terms of if it's craft specific you kind of want to have somebody that's got some depth to them mm-hmm. but that guy i knew one of the guys i interviewed one of the guys who used to do the playboy interviews i mean he used to go out he'd spend weeks with these people yeah weeks did you guys do that at the beginning no no, I thought that kind of unnecessary indulgence. Right? Because I knew people who did that.
1: Yeah. And I didn't think the results were any better, <laughs> you know, necessarily. And I don't know what they were doing other than... Hanging Legos out, spent a lot They were of, hanging out. I, listen, I did a Garcia interview. It was huge and lengthy. And we spent the afternoon smoking pot yeah. on his his front
0: lawn. In, what, back in, in the, the 70s, beach. right? Yeah.
1: And, uh, yeah, I don't smoke pot anymore. Who
0: does? Do you, Everybody. What are you kidding? No, who does? It's nah. legal, dude. Where have you been? Oh, It's, I, it's <laughs> California. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. It's legal we in won. most places. I mean, we I won. know. Yeah, people just smoking weed like it's, you know, goddamn breakfast. I can't anymore. But in any case- why can't um, you smoke pot anymore? It seems uh, to, it's, like to be the one thing that you could... It, it's it's, um, it's too rough on my lungs. Oh. And, and, oh, and you were a smoker, I, right? I, I was
1: for years. And then just, I cough, and it's just unpleasant. Oh, oh. And then what happened get, to your leg? Uh, I fell down on tennis yeah. court, and I broke my femur.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's a bitch. Yeah. It's getting old sucks, right? Yeah.
1: But anyway, the interview, I mean, I think the trick of it was not that you had to spend days, but you had to... <laughs> assign an interviewer that could connect really well right and not only understood such a but loved the subject right and and i don't know the play but i think people were eager to do the rolling stone interview yeah because it's such a wonderful forum for somebody who's never for a musician who's you know rarely given that length or taken that sure. seriously yeah
0: and 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 i think at that time at the beginning you know the 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 subculture was becoming the culture so you know a type of music was evolving Mm -hmm. that was exciting and new and i mean it seems that well you i the guy that was you started the magazine with ralph gleason right now he was a jazz guy right he was a jazz critic very prominent well-known now how old were you when you met that guy well i was in
1: college when i met him and when we started rolling Stone, i was 20 and ralph was 48 now, but was jazz your thing or like... No, jazz wasn't my thing. And Ralph kept trying to educate me and used to take me to all these jazz concerts and see people play... At when you were, and and stuff. when, when was, you were a kid. When I was a kid in college. I kept thinking, Jerry Garcia was the end of the earth. You know, that's where where guitar started. Yeah, and okay. he's, oh no. <laughs> you know, and he would take me around. But he, at the time, jazz critics were very snobby towards rock and roll. Didn't like it. It was yeah. discredited. Right. But Ralph saw the... Art in it. Sure. And the, the Beatles and the singers and songs. Oh, he does. and Simon. Yeah, really, yeah, and the words and what it was saying, its purpose is an art form, also yeah. kind of a political, social art form. But the jazz establishment mocked him. And so they, he was 48 years old. So they would say, well, Ralph Glees is a 40 year old man who can't decide whether he's, you know, three 16 year olds or 12, four 12 year olds. Yeah, yeah. And he loved that. And I thought that, yeah. But he had that spirit of youth and that, and that. Uh, and what did mm, you learn from him? Ah, Just a lot, just, you know, mainly mainly about ethics and integrity in journalism and the fact that you really should know your stuff going into it. I mean, there was no excuse for inaccuracy, sloppy stuff.
0: Is that the only experience you had in in dealing with a
1: journalist? No, no, no. I had been, well, with a professional journalist, the year before... Worked for Ramparts. Oh, yeah. And uh, which Ralph got me that job. And they weren't exactly professional journalists, but. But did that define your politics? No, not all my politics were opposite the Ramparts politics. Oh, yeah. The Ramparts politics were like stridently new left, Black Panther, That's too left for you? Not that it was too left. It's not that I disagreed with any of the policies or the ideas of it, but the approach was one. Not and I'm not, don't blame, I'm not saying that's on specifically on any particular yeah. group like the Pants, but generically, the approach of these this kind of new left thing was harsh and punitive and sometimes violent as it evolved into violence. Sure, and uh, they had this just little brittle understanding of how to get young people involved in politics. And my point of view and Ralph's point of view is that rock and roll had its kind of innate politics of of consciousness and a sense of human justice and hmm. what we should be talking about here was is a revolution that comes from culture right and which happened in the end i mean sure uh but that, that would be the approach of young people you can't go in the envelope say well you know uh sit down you know i, I don't know all kinds of different sure. things but the the message of the Beatles and stones there's a different kind of a thing, and it kind of coincided with the use of LSD and that kind of consciousness, and so we were very evangelistic about bringing this message, a message of kind of nonviolence. It was a message of Joan Baez, for
0: example. Right, but or, you weren't you weren't involved with the protests at all? Or, at it was, Berkeley? Yeah. Oh,
1: I was very involved in it. Yeah. And But that's different. That's not kind of what... I'm, the New Left came after that. Yeah. You know, and, oh, okay. And it was just strident. It was the Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman right, right, yeah. thing, a bunch of people after that, and... And and my our thing was really also very middle class, you know. Yeah. In a way is that where how you grew up? Middle class. Yeah. yeah. But steeped in liberal democratic politics. Where were you grow? Where'd you grow? Marin County. So you, both your folks
0: are, are were you relocated there? Where are you from? Yeah, originally? New
1: York City was where they are from. And I was that's where I was born.
0: Yeah. What kind? What was uh, what kind of business were your parents in?
1: Uh, my dad and mother start after the war. Yeah, They came, they were each in the Army and the, and the Navy, Yeah, got married, had me. Then they moved to the West Coast. They drove out to San Francisco. And oh, yeah. Like a po- typical post-war couple uh-huh. taking advantage of all the post-war boom, and yeah. had me, and so I was the leading edge of the baby boom. But they started a company in San Francisco that made baby formulas and supplied custom-made baby formulas to hospitals huh. all around the Bay Area. And up until that time hospitals all had their own formula rooms. And huh. my dad convinced the hospitals that they we would make their formula, he would make their formulas for them and they can convert that room to a bed. And then they had this big plant in San Francisco that did nothing but churn out baby formulas and customers around the clock, which were delivered by trucks with storks on the side of them to hospitals. Isn't that There's crazy? That's yes.
0: crazy. I mean, like you know, when I hear about that generation, you know, when they find but, these niches, like uh-huh. Where the hell does the inspiration come for something like that? I don't know.
1: I mean, it wasn't for me. I think I was, or maybe I was the last. I don't know. But it was just a classic kind of story of post-war folks coming out to California, having three kids, finding their dream. Everyone's still around? Yeah, they're all around. and, And I thought that was a. It was, in a way, kind of a model story for my Jewish generation. Yes. Yeah. And Marin County, you know, the classic kind of suburban. Sure. But not
0: not a lot of Jews. Not not a lot of San Francisco Jews. No,
1: we were (laughs) we were, um, you know, the minority for sure in our neighborhood. Yeah. And you were aware of that, you know. Yeah. You knew you were a little different. Yeah. And not there was any any active, anti anti-Semitism, but were they New York Jews? Uh, yes, but not not practicing Jews.
0: No sure, way. sure. But it's interesting because there is like a history of like sort of Bay Area Jews that go way back to the 1800s. And they were mostly, I think, German Jews, which are uh-huh. different than sort of the sort of Ashkenazi kind of New right. York trip. You know, there was a... And, and I, I think an aristocracy Jew. There, w- yeah. they That was what they were in
1: San Francisco. Yeah. There, there was, there, I mean, there was very important families like Zellerbachs, Zellerbach and so forth. Levi Strauss, wasn't it? Yeah, was it? absolutely. Louis yeah. Stra- yeah. yeah. Uh, so there was never... I don't think there was any sense of ostracism right there. And I think also that the the temples there were pretty elegant and yeah. the community was pretty standing, pretty yeah. integrated into the city. So I don't think they had it in a way that other 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 places but San has always been this
0: very liberal oh, yeah. place. It's and, crazy. I lived there for a couple of years. I never had any where? idea what the fuck was going on there. What, where do you live? <laughs> I lived on uh I lived on, like, South Van Ness in 22nd, Uh like, in uh, the early 90s in the Mission. Then I moved to the Panhandle Uh uh, for a year at Clayton and fell for a little while. But I always felt like it was kind of floating, man. I always felt like whatever made that city exciting is exactly made it kind of trippy. I mean, it was really – I never understood the power structure or the grid or anything. But there was a vibe in San Francisco, which I imagine you sort of capitalized on. Very much so. I mean – Freedom. It was like you, you come here to be a freak,
1: not yeah, a freak. With you could do life, that, but yeah. you there. There's freedom there, right? And there's a history of freedom in San Francisco going back to the Gold Rush. It was yeah. called the Barbary Coast, yeah. And in modern times, in the fifties, it was the home of the Beatniks, right? And it was a very and, and all kinds of arts. It's a very liberal city. Sure, and it's a city that could give birth to the rock and roll scene. There, it's a city that. Was tolerant to all kinds of people, and so yes. you could go there and be kind of who you wanted to be, and uh, and it, you know had a huge scene there. And then when you put that together with Berkeley, yeah. on one side and Stanford campus on the other side, you, it was just a breeding ground for rock and roll students and sure. drugs and all that yeah. stuff. And it was wonderful. It was a moment in history, and it was a it was a lay safe fair attitude towards life, and it was a wonderful place to
0: be. So you you started the magazine in '67, yeah. That's crazy early. Yeah. I mean that's like, you know, right at the peak of it. Well, that's you know, the beginning of it. The beginning of the 67 they called that the summer of love.
1: Right. Uh and you know, it, you know I guess it just took off in that time. So who in was around
0: like Moby Grape, Quicksilver, that, uh, The right, Dead, the,
1: the, the basic original groups were Quicksilver, Messenger Service, yeah. The Dead, Steve Airplane. No, that came a little bit later. Uh. A little bit later. Uh and Moby Grape came later than that, but Janice. yeah. Uh, who else was around there? Then those are the those are the basic groups. And then uh, then C. Miller moved to town. He wasn't really. Then he was going the Creedence and Clearwater. And John yeah. Foley was Separate, kind of across the bay.
0: Well, they were Stockton guys, right? Uh, or somewhere? In
1: Oakland, Oakland,
0: Brooklyn, o- Berkeley, yeah, yeah. Oakland.
1: Um, and Moby Grape came along during that like '68 time, period. That's a, hell, that's
0: a hell of a record. That first Moby that I think it's the what only Moby Grape. Yeah. Record. Yeah. That was a good one, right? Yeah, I like that. So, when you put that, you and so you and Ralph put the the magazine together, what was the first issue? Was that was that the John Lennon cover?
1: It had John Lennon
0: on the cover, and was that the first interview with him?
1: No, we didn't have an interview. We we were just starting from scratch. We know nobody. I did not. I wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. Where how to find John? Yeah, Lennon. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, and. Um, but we were putting scraps and pieces and things. And yeah. there was, you know, some of the local movie studios and local record company distributors had stills of their artists. Oh, there yeah, was a right. still from how, how I Won the War because that movie was oh, coming right. out. That's right, yeah. yeah from yeah, yeah. at that time United yeah. Artists. So it's promotional stuff. You it was promotional cheese. Yeah. So, But we chose that one. And it was a, what a wonderful, fortuitous choice. Yeah. Mean, John Lennon, arguably the premier star of the rock era something like that in a movie yeah and about politics right and it was our became our three specialties oh he had the helmet on right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah
0: When does it start to pick up momentum immediately? I mean, when do you start? You know, I went and interviewed Ben Fong Torres, you know. Really? (laughs) Years ago uh, when I started the podcast. It was about midway through. I went to his house, but he just was very defensive and unwilling to talk about anything in a way. Really? Yeah, he was sort of like, I'm not going to tell you that story. I'm not going to tell you that story. (laughs) You know, all he wanted to talk about was Little Feet. And I'm like, all right, dude. (laughs) Uh, Well, that man is now the senior statesman of... San Francisco rock writers. I right? guess so. I, I guess, but he, he certainly wasn't willing. He, he was really, I, I don't think he knew what the podcast was, but uh-huh. he, he thought I was there to blindside him somehow. I'm like, look, man. What year was that? It's got to be five or six, maybe, two, it was probably 2012, no, mm. 2012, 2013, really? yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it, long I mean, after we left there and all that. controversy. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, man, I've been, only been doing this since Ben's 2009. Kind of very taciturn, individual. But. I think he had just written the, the, the big book on little feet. So like it was on, probably on that junket, uh-huh. but he was just sort of like you know I don't want to talk about that stuff. I'm not uh-huh. gonna tell. Talk- I-, I got some great Janice stories. I'm not gonna talk to you about that though. I'm like all right, well fuck it. I can't talk about anything. So wait, now this book that you wrote, I mean, how much of it was a reaction to that Hagen biography? Not none, none of it. It wasn't a fuck you? Not at all. Not okay.
1: Not at all. I mean, I didn't skipping what I felt about that book. I had always felt that, and the reason I commissioned or let this other one start try i always thought that the story of rolling stone yeah and myself as a person as a post-war baby and yeah. then uh, set in the context so times if you saw it through the eyes of rolling stone what rolling stone's purview was and yes. how wide it was right you could really tell an authentic true story yeah. of this era of yeah. this generation right and i'd read so many that weren't any good but <laughs> yeah. this i think captures so but i wanted to um uh, write a book that that showed who we, who we were and what we stood for and and the importance of it and the importance of rock and roll, yeah, and the the contributions it has made to American society, yeah. and to the world, which I think have been substantial, sure they have been ridiculed a lot by the adult press, they continue yeah. to be today you know okay boomer and stuff right. like that and it's it 's not true, and what 's well, not true the the rock and roll generation yes, came for it and stood for and advocated for it, and Rolling Stone and yeah. its broad right. All kinds of equal rights, yeah. the, 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 all the student peep kids who went to the South the sure. in the 60s yeah. and the freedom Rides were from Berkeley and from white campuses. Right, But that women's rights, gay rights, bl- black rights, uh, the whole movement towards human justice, the getting rid of the drug war. I mean, right. this ent- entire move towards a humanistic you thought happened true, through rock and roll. True rock was one of the great advocates of it in yeah. our times. It was yeah. a great middle class popular
0: advocate of these ideas about now, life. Now do you have any sense like when like because there was a period there where there was idealism in the late 60s and then you know somewhere in the in the early to mid 70s you know things got a little dark, didn't they? Yeah,
1: well you had you had behind this all the backdrop was war in Vietnam, which said right. violence in the, uh, abroad, violence at home. Assassinations, riots,
0: demonstrations—it mm. was dark, mm. you know. And and, and the you, drugs got out of control, right? They shifted in the hate, like in San Francisco, once speed hit. Didn't it get kind of crazy? I—that's I, a separate issue. I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. It—you know—I mean, yeah, I did get there. kind of crazy. I was you there. weren't. But it was a kind of a sideshow. It wasn't like a a, a wide social phenomena. The use of speed, you know. I mean
0: skip ahead, twenty years cocaine became a pretty adequate. Well well that's different. That was yeah. a different class. But I mean were that's you around speed? Yeah, sure. But I mean but the but the nature of it. I, I think that you know like were you around for out you were there for Altamont. Did you have a part of that? No. I mean, no. I wasn't there for it. I didn't go to it. No, but you I, didn't. It
1: happen when you were it happened you when you the we were there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we w- part of our rise to fame was our coverage of Altamont. Yeah, which got us National Magazine Award and a lot of attention of taking a very hard ass view of it. But I don't think it was hard ass view. How it it wasn't as had been promoted? It wasn't Woodstock West? No. it when wasn't. When I woke up on Monday, the San Francisco Examiner had coverage of it and they were calling it Woodstock West before it happened or the day At, after before and after you know that was the the theory we had 20 people there and I got an office on Monday because I didn't go and people calling calling it was
0: horrible is that. And no bathrooms people were out of control be, yeah, bad got murdered. Yeah,
1: murder some got murdered And it was just a total bad vibe situation, so. I just read Joel Silver's book
0: on that. Apparently that was a really good book. I thought it was a great book. Yeah. Did he ever write for you, that guy? Not really, no, No. maybe occasionally, but yeah. yeah. So was that a turning point for the magazine, that coverage? In a
1: great sense, yes, because I mean, it meant we had to stand up and despite my friendships with Mick and the Rolling Stones, really kind of tell the truth about what we thought had happened and lay the blame at the feet of various parties who were involved, irrespective of what anybody's personal feelings might sure. be heard, or Mick might get upset. and Were we, you and Mick friends then? We were friends then, and, 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 and we had been in business together, putting out Rolling Stone in England. Oh, he was your partner so, in that, yeah. Yeah, so it was tough call in a way, but not for me, really. I just knew what we had to do, and I knew that if we did it right, you know, my friendship with Mick would go on pause, but would resume, yeah. and that our integrity was our, and honesty, as perceived by the readers yeah by ourselves and by the artists we covered to be cri- absolutely critical to the success and importance of Rolling Stone to everybody, to the so, meaning of it. So, that so we had a, to stick with that. That was a big moment then. Yeah, it was a big moment
0: because you, you know you you couldn't to be that honest. I mean, especially since half the fucking world was there mm. from the town, and you know your readership was there. That you know everybody who had the experience that was horrendous. Mm-hmm. If you were going to gloss over it yeah. in in, de- in, de- in de- deference to uh, to Mick, you'd be it'd be it'd be, uh, be done. Yeah, you couldn't it, it couldn't be done. So that so the journalist integrity of the thing was was that was that do you think that was the first time you guys really kind of got into sort of real journalism? Um,
1: I think we had been in it before, and but listen, this is after our second and a half year, we had been doing it before, but never as powerfully and as thoroughly as that. We had done some really good journalistic things, but this. Multiple people involved, a big take, yeah. you know, long piece. It was in our backyard. We had everybody yeah. there. It was every opportunity to do something special, and it won for us. Our little publication, the National Magazine Award that year. We were in competition with Vogue and the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. All these big. What magazines. was your
0: uh, public? What was your numbers then? How, how many? Uh, what was your publication? What do you call? I it, think the, circulation. Uh, circulation, yeah. <laughs> I, under a hundred thousand, maybe yeah, by right, that time. Right, right, right. You know, we were small. When do you start to realize that
1: you have power? Um well I think as we started to cover the 1972 presidential election we put Hunter Thompson With Hunter, yeah Was that the first time you used him? No, Hunter started writing for the magazine in 1970 when he ran for sheriff in Aspen, Colorado. <laughs>
0: He's going to make the road dirt again, wasn't and that his campaign slogan? So he
1: was going to sod the streets of Aspen, yeah. <laughs> and put up stocks for bad drug dealers, remember? Yeah. Rename the place Fat City. <laughs> so that the real estate dealers couldn't say like fat city highlands. You know, yeah. They sell Aspen Highlands but you can't sell fat city highlands. Anyway, yeah. but uh, Hunter started then. When did and, he
0: first come to your attention? That year. We, Hell's I Angels?
1: Had, yeah, I read, before starting Rolling Stone I read Hell's Angels and admired him a lot and then I, either at, I had, he wrote me a fan letter yeah. in said about how much he liked Rolling Stone Yeah, and really, really nice and so I wrote him and asked him if he would write a obit of uh, Terry the Tramp, uh, one of the angels that had just died. Yeah. And uh, he said he could do that, but he was very busy running for sheriff. I said, well, why don't you write about that? Yeah. And then we met after that, and we, you know, I mean, uh,
0: it, it was seen, it was... <laughs> wizard coming in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was crazy. So that was sort of when he was shifting into that Gonzo approach. He probably yeah. facilitated that on some level. Yeah, I think we gave him more freedom for it. But he, he had started by accident. You know, yeah. He only
1: came to label it Gonzo when he started at Rolling Stone. But it was kind of a, it started as a product of his just kind of inability or unwillingness to put things together so he'd throw them together. he call that Gonzo. Right, but because Hell's Angels is pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's and he was a straightforward reporter. Yeah. He was a newspaper journalist. Yeah and um, it was during working for us and then Vegas which really gave it that shove off Um, Fear and Loathing he did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and then we went from that to Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail right to 72 and he was brilliant that's a
0: masterpiece
1: and that is when you could see that he has was having that big a voice, yeah, in politics. I mean, people really pay attention. Other members of the press, the McGovern campaign. You know, I mean, really inside it, there you started to get the sense that, oh man, this is meaningful on a different, lo- level, like, much different level than right. just meaningful to the publicity department of a record company or or just music press. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. So it was, a, it was a wow. This is a field. That's to a play big deal. On. Yeah, this is this is our new field. You
0: know. So you so you were able to you know balance it out. You, you had you know straight up music press, right. and then you had you know big pieces, investigative pieces, you know challenging pieces. Mm-hmm. So that was where you felt the juice. I yeah, in there and leading up to there, yeah. So uh, now, what about like the, the, a lot of these other writers that you you sort of nurtured? I mean, all these people were kids. You know, like Anne Liebowitz was a kid. Yeah, right. And, all of them were kids. Who else you got? Tom Wolf. I mean, he was kind of established, right? By he was already he, established by the time. Right, right, right. He had done a few things, but Grill Marcus must have been a kid. Grill Marcus, a kid. He's somebody I knew from college. We <laughs> we were in a school together <laughs> yeah, at yeah, Berkeley. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you see all the, all these people come up, and the same with a lot of the artists. Well, we, yeah. I mean, it was
1: it was a it was a really a generational thing. It was a, a kind of a sense of shared purpose and identity. Then you know, because I mean, this is the largest best educated wealthiest generation of americans in history it was it was coming into a system just ready kind of to take it over by sheer numbers and by the fact that as i said they're smarter and they had we had a lot of money then yeah and not individually but the country as a whole uh career wasn't as important then people were not ambitious to get wall street or
0: had to get this not this way different it but it evolved into that though i mean that generation i mean like i i know you speak of it, like i'm a late boomer and my you know i have a mild resentment to towards you early boomers only because it's sort of <laughs> we had a better time i mean we're <laughs> you tell d- you. you did better drugs better music no <laughs> I, get out of here <laughs> i get it i get it but you know you also it's sort of like you know get out of the way already <laughs> Well <laughs> the but there was a shared sense of purpose right. I think that was shared with
1: the audience and uh, and with the musicians and that's what galvanized the people the young people who came to Rolling Stone yeah either came you know came with a sense of mission yeah they came a lot of them were newspaper reporters like Esther House or yeah. Hunters or something like that who were looking for a place to work that would set a new bar give them space purpose yeah you know, freedom to do things. And we offered that to people, and we were open to young people. And so, therefore, people would come to us all the time, and we could sort out the more talented among them.
0: Was there ever a sense of, uh, uh, you know, a conflict of interest? I mean, what in relationship with record companies or the artists, or did you just pick who you liked and that was that? We picked who we liked and that <laughs> was that.
1: And <laughs> yeah. and we were in San Francisco. We were isolated very pretty much from most of the record business. And yeah. The pressure's that we could be brought to bear. Nobody really, very few people ever really tried to push us or, you know, there's the usual handling for a uh, a cover, an artist, or coverage. Well, you would do reviews, you had record reviews, you had the stars. But we didn't give away stuff or we we were not movable in that way Uh, and everybody knew that and so very few people would ever approach us about it. Because as I said, our integrity and our and our selectivity of saying we will be covering the best artists only was critical to the success of right.
0: Only but, but these are the best artists only. But you know, it was a handful of artists for you know for decades. Some of them. yeah, there were a lot of.
1: You know, there were a lot of good artists around. And we yeah. remember we used to cover the Stones and the Beatles and Dylan
0: endlessly. Yeah, endlessly um, for decades. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, but true, I mean, yeah, that was good to bet on those guys. Yeah. Certainly, Dylan sort of evolved into something interesting. And then, you know, Springsteen as well, you guys, you know, seem to be good friends. And, kind of been on that uh, train mm-hmm. for a long time. These mm-hmm. are evolving artists. And I, as I recall, the Rolling Stone record reviews, that was the star system, right? There was one yeah. star, two star, three. So, and, and it seemed like you covered most music coming in that that department was active.
1: Yeah, but then, sure, slowly, the number of records being released outpaced everything. There was so much, everything was kind of, people were pretty Groups electric spinach and strawberry alarm
0: clock sure and, sure you
1: know the cauliflower club and yeah. all the stuff and yeah it was too much stuff coming out so we but are there are
0: things. there bands and I know you've been accused of this before are there bands you just will not you know indulge at all I mean I, I obviously yes but I mean but like you know there there's been talk of of you maybe stifling some people's membership into the rock and roll hall of fame that uh, you, you know that feel like they deserve it is that something that you... well
1: there is talk of that but I don't. I don't control that. I'm not on the nominating no, you, you committee. You have nothing I, against Foreigner per se. Nothing against Foreigner per se. In fact, I was very good <laughs> friends with Mick Jones. Sure, he's but, a big dude. Um, the uh, And I like to work. But, you know, Foreigner's name has never come up <laughs> in a nominating committee uh, to <laughs> oh, be nominated. Oh, like, are, not, are you a speed wagon? No. No, you know, there's that <laughs> yeah. era, not not them, and right, right. not Boston and, and sticks and uh, sticks. No, yeah, yeah. I mean that that whole era. No, it doesn't come weird up. Weird era, all. huh? I grew up in that era. I went to high school in that era. It's uh, weird. It's well, odd. You're not going to get in the Hall of Fame either. I mean, <laughs> what can I tell you? Wait, give <laughs> me time. Give <laughs> and me time. And it's still- going to be me <laughs> <laughs> you. Got in pretty quick, but the, um, you know, but there are some. I mean there's kind of like bon jovi it took years for him to get in and yeah e-
0: eventually you'll run out of guys they'll all get in no they might not be around there might be one guy left but they'll get in when you moved to new york so by the time you moved to new york in 77 a decade in you're well established making a fortune everyone reads the magazine it's got power so what facilitated that move why did we do it well or, yeah, I mean I mean San Francisco was it like had San Francisco lost its relevance? Well let's 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 start there. Yeah. Well this wasn't the governing reason, it
1: was in the background and that wasn't something I hadn't really even thought through yeah. at the time but it turned out once again to be one of those fortuitous things. By that time San Francisco had really not had not was no longer the Center of American avant-garde right. cultural activity, yeah. and in fact, it kind of shifted back to New York. Yeah, New York, which had lain fallow for the decade, and then people moving oh, out the late
0: sixties and seventies because yeah. it was economically compromised. But punk rock was sort of started. But that was until late. That wasn't late until 70s. mid seventies, right? Yeah,
1: when we got there. Yeah, but the the um of the San Francisco scene to dead had moved to Marin, right. and yeah. the Jefferson Airplane had become the Jefferson Starship. Yeah, and, yeah. But the real reason we moved is. I had half the office in New York, half in San Francisco, and I to run the place, I had to consolidate both operations in one place, the business and the editorial sides, and the magazine business in New York. So for us to grow and have access to the talent pool of writers and advertising salesmen, yeah. and people who knew about the magazine business, we had to go there. You, they wouldn't move to San Francisco.
0: But it's still all you, your own operation. It's, it was still all our own operation. Yeah. So,
1: that uh, basically was it. You know, I had to consolidate and, and had to move to New York for the future and for my ambitions for the magazine to grow bigger. And he brought and, you at that time. You had three kids already. I no had no kids already. Oh, no kids. No kids. We the bought, woman
0: you married was with you from the beginning. From though, the right? very beginning, yes. She was a writer.
1: Uh, not real. No, she was. She wasn't. She was sort of started the subscriptions director, but it's somebody who I met at Ramparts when I was working there. Oh, wow.
0: Okay jane jane exactly
1: yeah um and she wanted to move to new york because that's where she was from and homesick and yeah she also didn't want to be around when the earthquake struck sure right hasn't yet really not hasn't yet but also there's this sla and a zodiac killer in the air just time to get out it's getting dark and i've been going back and forth to new york for the last three years before that i felt at home in new york i yeah. felt Rolling Stone felt more at home in New oh, was yeah? appreciated there more. Really? He, well,
0: it's a magazine town. Well, that's the thing about San Francisco, though. San Francisco, like it, once they turn on you, they'll turn on you. They didn't turn on us, but we weren't that important
1: there during that time. Yeah. I mean, it was the era of Bill Graham.
0: Yeah. You know, Francis sure.
1: Coppola was there.
0: KMPX was there. You know, K-San. The, but- what, did, what what was your experience in seeing concerts in San Francisco? Did you right. were you there at the beginning of the Acid thing? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so you were there at the first experiment. I went to the, the very f- for a very
1: second the second Acid test, which was with the Grateful Dead
0: at the Shipman's Hall. What was that? Where,
1: that where, Longshoreman's Hall. That Longshoreman's was Longshoreman's Hall. That yeah. was well into it. The yeah. First, oh, really? The, I was in college, going to the first one, um, and it was in San Jose. And it was right following a Rolling Stones concert in
0: 66. Yeah. Oh really? But that was yeah. the last tour before Altamont. They came back in sixty nine, right? The, like, yeah. Yeah, probably. So so how was that acid then? P- pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. I mean, it was wild. That was the Auswey shit, right? The real shit. Uh I don't I didn't identify that. Oh. Presumably so. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what was it, and so did you find, not unlike a, like a, a couple of people, the guy who stands out the most to me in my mind in terms of really identifying what acid did to his brain was R. R- Crumb. Like, you know, uh-huh. if you look at R. Crumb before his cartoons before acid and the ones when, you know, he saw a way of elongating those feet, uh-huh. like, he, like I could see how it shifted his perception. Did it shift your perception? I didn't. Did long, you, my feet getting longer? No, no, what no. But about? you know, I'm just saying your way of seeing the world. Oh yeah.
1: I mean, I think yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I think when you take LSD for the first time, you really understand how interconnected every bit of life is. Oh, uh, oh okay, yeah, right. The and, frequency. Well, just that you know, all living things are connected by yeah. some energy field, and I think it at least brings us some uh, a perception or like that yeah. these are the sign of that you should respect all these things that you sure. respect the natural respect things all around just yeah. by that insight sure and it's that kind of thing and then plus you know there's the vividness with it which it brings to music and yeah. all the sensory yeah, yeah. aspects of yeah. things and you know when you feel things that intensity intensely i think you always understand them to be of that intensity at some point long i mean you can't re- always recover that intensity, sure but, but, but uh, know it's there point of reference yeah, and I, I I I I feel greatly I benefited from it. Sure, and I think people would, and I think you know it's a question of managing it correctly. And people are doing it again, microdosing yeah. psilocybin, yeah. and ayahuasca. I, I would hope it you know comes under government regulation so that you know things like purity and uh, dosages are yeah. you know sorted out so it's not so, all the underground thing. And, so we don't have Altamont again. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the. Uh, I keep seeing Mick up there yeah. behind you. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think there's a lot of tons of positive things to sure. say about drugs. But so
0: so. But by the time you go, so you get in New York, you're 77. Punk rock's happening. Right. Disco is kind of over. And, or no, still, it's no, just it's starting in,
1: on the horizon. Yeah. When we got to New York, decided to move. The first thing I saw was there's a headline in the Daily yeah. News: Ford to City, Drop Dead. So we were welcomed into the city as the first kind of new enterprise and. Especially a young one that come to the city for oh, years, yeah, because the bad situation, yeah. And then you know, punk rock arrived from England, yep. And uh, we had to decide how to deal with that. And a couple of years later, disco. And in the meantime, the kind of the old, there was just a drop in the vitality of, of rock and roll at that time. Yeah, uh, the San Francisco groups were not particularly making or being or special. There's nothing right, not and also than, all
0: those you know, the late '60s, early '70s, you know, big rock bands were kind of. They kind of plateaued a well, bit. the you Stones know? were out of action. The Beatles were gone. Zeppelin was, was not was doing. You know, was towards the end of Zeppelin.
1: Uh, then, at the same time, however, movies came alive. I remember that's when Star Wars came out, right? You know, and there's this whole new generation of of filmmakers, especially in Coppola, yeah. Lucas, right. Spielberg, were coming and coming with movies who were really interesting and relevant to cover. Yeah, yeah. And, about. and so I kind of center artistic young people shifted a little from rock to movies at that time you yeah, know? yeah and then back again it was moving around so it was a shift in a lot of things when we moved to new york
0: but like for you like you know as like i guess like do you consider yourself a a a, a writer i was a writer when i started out i wanted to be
1: and then i couldn't get anybody published my writing about rock and roll then so um, I started my own
0: magazine. So you you see yourself as more of a, a publisher and I editor. I became
1: an editor, and then after that, a publisher, and, you know, now I'm back to being a writer after all this time.
0: <laughs> and I must say, I enjoy it. Now, yeah. when, like, people, like, did you ever, like, there were other magazines around. Did you ever feel a sense of competition? You know, Cream just started up again. I saw. I, no, the only competition we ever really had was Spin. That it, happened later, right, in the 70s? Much later.
1: Yeah. Uh, but... No, because we had everybody beat by that time. I mean, the, the, you couldn't compete with our level of talent. Yeah. That we assembled. yeah. Uh, the loyalty and the acts wanting to be with us. And that we came out every two weeks, so we would beat anybody who's putting on a monthly magazine. Yeah, yeah. Cream or Spin. I mean, and then the
0: artists, who would, where would you rather go? Cream sure. or Rolling Stone? Well, Cream was kind of dirty. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> and did you like Wester Bangs at all? I, I, you didn't know? I mean, he was a talented man, but I, I fired him. Oh, you did <laughs> yeah, um, That's what did it. <laughs> the, well,
1: I just thought, you know, Lester was a clever writer, but he was just writing his riffs, yeah. be, savaging groups in yeah. the record section, just not having nothing to do with the record, but it was a good riff for him. Sure. And I didn't think the mission of Rolling Stone, our mission was to support artists and analyze them fairly and critically and objectively and treat them with respect you know yeah Lester
0: Baines didn't give a sh you know anything about it yeah so so in in terms when you're entering New York this is pre-disco so this is where cocaine happens kind of yeah
1: I guess in that time period yeah
0: because there's like there's no it started before that yeah it was I remember it around a lot in San Francisco oh yeah oh yeah but uh, but it seems like in terms of the uh, of disco culture and the sort of you know the new New York, the mingling of that, that sort of aristocratic and wealthy class with you know nightclub life, that all starts to happen. Studio fifty four. Sure, yeah, sure. And that, you know, obviously tones based not only
1: on cocaine, but quaaludes and oh, yeah. poppers and all sorts of stuff. Oh, That's yeah, quite yeah. a scene. But just just to the point. Yes. Cocaine was getting very prevalent in San Francisco. By seventy two, seventy three. 73. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was all around, and there was a lot of it in the office. You liked it? It's 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 irresistible in a way at the beginning because <laughs> it's just fun, <laughs> lights you up, and you know, it's yeah, yeah. only after a while do you start to realize this is you know, you,
0: you're not sleeping, dude. Yeah. Hey, yeah, oh, that's yeah, where the yeah, quaaludes come in fast, yeah. and you know,
1: yeah. Now, I in my book I explicitly say. Raise the question, how do I feel about now and what would I say? And i say, don't do it. I, it was a waste of time and yeah. energy and money. You know? Yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't recommend
0: it to anybody. Now, when you're dealing with people like Hunter, who's just a bag of drugs all the time, I mean, did, that exploration was sort of interesting. I mean, he seemed to do something with it that no one else really did. Well, remember, he was a doctor.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He
0: was a doctor of pharmacology. Um,
1: Hunter had an you know an, an unusual... Ability to use that stuff and resist it and absorb it and balance it. and He was a professional drug taker, really. Yeah. But it destroyed him in the end.
0: Yeah. Coke
1: and drink. I mean, it it away his talent and his ability to do things, and as it does with everybody. Yeah. Now nobody you, has survived. That's right. a big bout of k- cocaine.
0: Jerry too. Jerry. Jerry. With lots of drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Heroin and you know, look at people like Sly Stone and yeah. T, T, like Turner. And, yeah. You know,
0: what was your like when you look back on that? Which deaths hit you the hardest? Well, John Lennon's death, obviously. Oh, Maybe my that God, that was so hard. Course. Brutal. Because uh, that one you didn't see coming. He's I mean, young. And Everything was turning around.
1: Just, oh, just terrible. That's the end of an era. Yeah. yeah that's when we're talking about the end of eras. Um, what year was
0: that? 80? 1980, 80? yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was it, huh? It. Like Manson killed the 60s and John Lennon's death killed the uh, 70s.
1: You could kind of say that, you know? Mm. I mean, in a broad sense, yeah. you know, you could say, uh, as John said, is the dream is over. Yeah, you know that Manson represented kind of hippie drug use gone too far, even though he was just an ex-con. Yeah, no, yeah, you he know, was it wasn't said, yeah. really, and.
0: Uh, it was I think it was it was represented as such by mainstream press.
1: It was represented as stuff, but yeah. there was a, a vibe about it that yeah. felt that way.
0: Yeah, it dirtied up everything.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: so when when you come into New York, you're there three years and then Lennon dies. How' does that change you? How's that change? Because that seems to be the beginning of, you know when, I don't know when Wolf wrote bonfire, but like mm-hmm. you know that exploration of, of the beginning of 80s excess, which sort of you know the wave of that crashing now and crashing with Trump in a way, Right. When does that start in earnest? Well, uh, in 1980,
1: when John was killed, let's see, Rolling Stone, we were seriously established in New York and we got on our feet on the ground. Yeah. We were, you know, in the, in the mix of the whole New York groove and had settled into kind of who we were. When you have an event like John dying, it really makes you think about all kinds of things and it really sets you back and makes you think, who am I right. and what am I and what am I going to do? You know, How do I define myself in a relationship? What am I going to learn from this? This is yeah. serious this stuff. This is
0: you as a person or you, you as a you, magazine? Both. Yeah,
1: You have to really say, what do I really yeah. want to get done? Yeah. If this is what it's going to be, if this, right. th- if that's this can happen, yeah. So that really shaped us. Tom and Bonfire came after that. That, that was my idea for Tom and yeah. he did a, a job so brilliant beyond what I had anticipated or expected Didn't you suggest that crystallized
0: him, didn't you suggest to him that he make him a writer and not an investment banker? <laughs> well but
1: we were on deadline yeah. after a year and i had it was supposed to. Run, and he said you know i've thought about this young i want to change it from a writer to change the hero from a writer to an investment banker yeah well i don't care what he was thinking i was going to say it was a bad idea because yeah. i wanted to, i knew if he changed that character it'd be another year uh, <laughs> so it's a time because you have to go research right. a whole new set of circumstances. Yeah, you yeah. know this whole world of investment banker. It takes yeah. me a year to do research. Well, yeah. when we publish it, the main character, Sherman McCoy, was a freelance writer. Yeah. and he changed into an investment bank Yeah, didn't make any difference in the plot, anything that happened, but but it's fortuitous in terms. Totally. of Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I'm saying, oh, nobody gives a hell about <laughs> investment bankers, of course, it was the beginning of the <laughs> me decade and uh, yeah. go go and yeah, what do they call them the the. That people made so much damn money, masters of the universe.
0: Oh, masters yeah, of the universe. Yeah, yeah. Were you one of them? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so in the eighties, like also, like you know, in terms of your friendships, it seems like you know many of your friends are artists. Yeah. Who are your best friends these days? Yeah.
1: Well, I, I make it sound like name dropping.
0: It's okay. So I don't want to do that. No, I've... it's not name dropping. It's just it's interesting that you know, in in light of of your life that you know a lot of times we don't see these guys as regular guys mm-hmm. so it's not really name dropping they're just these are the guys that you came you up you have with. to buy the book to get that to get the <laughs> juice i'm like that's the juice
1: uh, i'll say that i'm still extremely close friends with some old friends of mine from san francisco he, yeah his names mean nothing to anybody but yeah my closest oldest friends and, yeah you know i'm really super close friends with uh john landau and john cott who are Two people at Rolling Stone on issue one. That's right. That they were both college students. Lando's John, a,
0: uh, Springsteen's guy. Springsteen's manager. Yeah,
1: and and then then um, I've got old longtime friendship in San Francisco with Michael Douglas, who I met. Mike Douglas. Francisco, when he yeah. was doing Streets of San Francisco, and you guys still friends? Toll. Oh I mean, yeah, great guy. Close, I've interviewed him. Love that guy. Yeah, he's as close a friend as I've got. Yeah, and. Um, you know, Bruce. Yeah, and uh, and I must say I'm really close with Bette Midler and her husband. Oh yeah, we we travel all together all the time and yeah, you know, just have a great time. He's together.
0: still friends with Mick.
1: Yeah, I don't see Mick as much anymore. Mick moved back to Europe. He was in New York for the longest time in the states, and um, we're in touch all the yeah, time. Yeah. But um, uh, our social life of hanging together, which I've put
0: a lot of in this book, um, yeah. you know, and then when he moved back, sure. So how does the, the your involvement with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame happen? What is that? How did that get started?
1: Well, um, Ahmed Erdogan had the idea of starting a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in some inchoate way. You know, he doesn't know what it was. And invited me and a couple other people to work with him doing yeah. do it. And we evolved the idea of putting together an annual induction dinner and an actual physical Hall of Fame yeah. museum. And it took about 10, uh, 10 years to get this. Maybe longer, fifteen years to get it actually yeah. built. In the meantime, we were doing induction dinners every year, which were the most wonderful things in the world. Yeah, pulling together for one night only. Yeah, the great artists of our yeah. times and paying tribute and combinations of artists playing together that you'd never ever seen before. It was a start where we started collaborations of artists and guest artists. Now it's a usual trendy thing. But then you, you know, you have like. Mick and Bruce and Bob Dylan all singing like a Rolling Stone on yeah, stage yeah. together. Sassi- Before yeah. it was televised, just yeah, as a yeah, performance. Yeah. yeah, And then I made the decision to televise it because I thought this stuff is too good yeah, to yeah. keep to a thousand people in the Waldorf Astoria. Yeah. Let's just tape it and put it on TV. Sure. You know, people should see it and then it's become bigger and bigger. On so. HBO. But you, were, you and Ahmed were the... We were the instrumental people. And, and uh, I, uh, Ahmed was the chair, I, I ran the thing and put it together
0: and Ahmed was kind of the guiding spirit. Yeah. So, yeah, he was quite a presence for so long. Total. Like I, you know, I I was in uh, I portrayed Jerry Wexler in the Aretha Franklin movie. And oh, that you respect did movie, yeah. Oh, wow. So I had it like I got <laughs> I, I got a little. Did you see it? Uh, I
1: saw the beginning of it. Oh. It's, it's that famous incident with Ray with the uh, Rick Hall and Sure yeah. up with
0: their Dad in the hotel. Yeah, it's all yeah, there. the fighting, yeah, it's yeah. all in there. Yeah. Uh but but like I I was did a little research on the Ertigan brothers uh-huh. and, yeah. and, and Wexler himself and how he fit in and how they mm-hmm. fit in and that that it's interesting because that whole prehistory yeah. of rock and roll, pre to when you started. Right. Uh, it seems like you have a fairly healthy respect for all that. I was very close to Jerry. He was very helpful to us. He's Was he?
1: Good absolutely good friends with Landau. He signed up Boz when I brought him Boz gags You do
0: oh, you produced Boz's first, first record? Yeah. The yeah. SOA record? Yeah. Uh
1: huh. And um at Muscle Shoals. Yeah. Oh yeah. And um and Ahmed I became very, very close to. Ahmed was a real mentor to me. In New York. In New York. And um How so? Yeah. He was a friend of Ralph's, and I don't know, we just. Ralph Gleason. Yeah, and he was a. Because f- his, his brother was a jazz guy. His yeah. brother's a jazz guy, yes. And then over the years, we just, you know, we became very social friends. And then when we did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we started working together on a daily, weekly basis. And so we'd see so much of each other, and we traveled so much together. And he was so fun, and sophisticated, and sophisticated, and, and funny.
0: I mean, so did you he find, one,
1: oh, what a wonderful man
0: he yeah, was. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that like, you know, somehow at some point in, in New York, just by, you know, some of the stories in the book and also the pictures, that you were sort of elevated to this this world of of creative people who were extraordinarily wealthy. That you know, you were in that circle at some point. Well, I don't know if they
1: were all extraordinarily wealthy. I mean, I don't know. They were, everybody was quite successful. Okay. And people made money for their success. But I wouldn't call it Ahmed or any of the art, you know, any of the artists, they're all well off. They've right. all got, you know, well, it just seems the
0: lifestyle shifted in New York from San Francisco, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. and but just every, in general, you
1: know, in New York, I mean, that's where people go to yeah. make their careers all yeah, this yeah. and all stuff. And but you know, these these are not like billionaire type people, you know. Yeah, but it's a it's a it's a sophisticated. Did you know Donald I, Trump in New York? I've met him a couple of times. I found him
0: despicable, even then. <laughs> You know, I wouldn't, he, I wouldn't really have anything to do with him. He, <laughs> yeah. he kept, he kept, you know, anyway. Yeah, gonna, you know. You don't have to, yeah, you don't have to talk about him. Now, what in terms of, like, later, obviously, do you feel, a couple things, do you feel like, you know, that you stayed there too long? Like in New York? No, oh, just in the magazine. Oh, my staying with the magazine? Yeah.
1: No, I had always thought, you know, get it to 50 years and I'm going to retire, I'm going to just absolutely retire at 50, bow out, take a bow, and leave. Yeah. And I got almost there and uh, but then the internet intervened and it really started to erode the foundations of the magazine business very substantially and the news Quickly? Business, it was gradual but it went very fast. Yeah. You know, I mean they, they really sucked the life out of, out of magazines and yeah. newspapers and journalism. Sure. They stole all the, you know, Apple and, and Microsoft and these companies, Google, yeah. stole all the contents free, didn't pay anybody a dime for them. Right, right. And right. then took the material, repurposed it, sold the, those re- readers the our readers to the advertiser without giving us a cut whatsoever, yeah, and they right. took the life out of it. Right. But in any case, I think I went, you know, it was time to go for sure, and maybe I could have retired a few years earlier, but. What year did you retire? I, about three years ago, four years ago. Oh, just, just now. Just as their 50th anniversary. Oh, wow. In 19... 19- in 2017, yeah.
0: And do you feel like that the magazine maintained its quality and integrity throughout the entire On run? The, that I was there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah? yeah. I mean, we didn't have as much money to work with towards the end, because the advertising is shrinking and going to the internet, but we're still putting out high quality work. Yeah. R- you know, good photography, all this stuff. Just much less of it. And also at the same time, it was harder in a way to do magazine editorial, because more people were gravitating towards the internet, less money was I mean, available. And when
0: did you change the size? Before that, I
1: for- yeah. I forget when, but used to like
0: those big sizes. I yeah. remember buying it when I was a kid with the newspaper, and then it became the magazine, Porter, and then, yeah. then became. The- we changed format a uh, half dozen times. Yeah,
1: I I honestly think although the big format was great, and it's still kind of classic, feels classic. The it's magazine great. style format yeah. was just it made it easier, better to read. We could manage the pages better. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I liked it better as a magazine. Honestly, you did. Yeah. But the newspaper lasted a long time. Oh yeah, I mean it was. We we've been telling with shrinking the size down. I think for years before that, and every time I bring it up, everybody scream at me and yell at me. No, you can. It's the heritage rolling. I mean, that I was going to destroy. And really, when we did change, it was for the better. And the only thing, you
0: know, it's a nostalgia item by that point. I mean, it, it's just easier. I don't know. Yeah, uh, how many uh, how many interviews did you guys do with Dylan? I don't
1: know. I think about eight or nine or yeah. ten over the years. Yeah. Remember, Bob was famous for. Oh, he doesn't give interviews. That's right. He's mysterious. Yeah. Doesn't talk. Yeah. Over the years, he goes ten. Pretty long. Seriously. Yeah. I interviews. remember
0: the the later ones. You you know. I think in the eighties. You know, he he was pretty pretty candid. He's pretty very sure. straightforward. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: we put out a book uh, called "The Essential Bob Dylan" and. With these interviews, you stream together, you've really got a record of Bob. I mean, he didn't talk to anybody else. We you know. Right. We were the ones. He respected us. I re- we respected him. We really wanted to support him and his work. I mean, that was the core of Rolling Stone was that kind of set of values and that attitude. Yeah. And uh I did two of them and they were, both worked really quite good. Yeah. Even though he's a that you know talking to the last one was hilarious yeah and um, he did series interviews with Michael Gilmore and Jonathan Cott, yeah. and Kurt Loder yeah. and Ben Punktoras and uh Doug Brinkley and uh novelist Jonathan not Franzen Lethem. yeah yeah i mean and they went, and every time I would send somebody different to do Bob to get a different point of view and a different yeah, yeah. take. And,
0: and was it a lot of it relative to how he felt about the guy there?
1: No, I mean, each one he respected. I sent, these were all the serious people, but they all had a different point of view, a different thing they wanted to find out of Bob, oh, about yeah. Bob, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so it was always exploring from a different yeah, angle, yeah, you know, yeah. that's why I didn't keep doing it all the same. I didn't want yeah. the same interview with How's him. How's your
0: relationship time? with him? Excellent.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's all right. Yeah, he's great. Oh, good, yeah. good. We get along great. We have when we see each other, it's just laughs. It's yeah, funny. yeah, it's he's, totally
0: funny. he's kind of funny. He's a funny old guy, very funny guy. Yeah, I uh would, now also, uh, you know, I was in almost famous for a minute. No, wait, see, all my movies, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was in uh. I was the I was the promoter at the concert when uh-huh. the, the guitar player gets electrocuted uh-huh. and they leave before yeah. their set is over. Uh-huh. I'm the guy chasing oh, them yeah? on the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Very small part, but yeah. I'm in there. I'm
1: yeah. you are fellow cast yeah. yeah, that's right.
0: I'm the cast. You got the
1: bigger parts than I did. That's a little bit. Yeah, right. oh, but come uh, on. but I like, didn't get any speaking lines. You had speaking lines.
0: I'm trying to remember where you were. Lock are. the gate. That was me. I was in
1: the at the end towards the end of the movie. Yeah. The the Rolling Stone reporter is chasing. Somebody outside the Gramercy Park Hotel, in New York and going from taxi cab to taxi cab. Yeah, yeah. Looking at somebody, and and I'm in one taxi cab. I'm reading the Times. And I look at him, give him a dirty look, and he runs oh, on. Yeah. So, so the credits of- now say Yalwinter as Legend in a Taxi Cab. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, definitely uh, it was for people who knew. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So how close was that to the reality? It
1: was very, very close.
0: It I mean, was. It, first of all, I always think of it as a love letter, Rolling Stone, sure,
1: and to those days, and yeah. to who we all were. Yeah. And it was accurate about Rolling Stone. I mean, that's what Rolling Stone reporters did, yeah. more or less. They got and hang out on the road for a while, yeah. you know, hang with the band, get yeah. into it, because they loved the band. Now, yeah. And that's not always, like been, it was not like loose and laid back and taking acid with people yeah. or whatever. But- it was very much the spirit of the times, and it was a, it was a, a true story, a true story about Cameron, and yeah. Cameron, came, C- Cameron wrote for us, I think, when he was 14 and a half, yeah. you know, he started. <laughs> yeah, and I had to write a, get a letter from his mother for permission for him to go on the road. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he was in high school.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he and didn't how run away. Did he, how many pieces did he write for you guys? Gosh, I don't know. Oh, lot? He a lot, yeah. He yeah. had lots of covers. And you guys- He was were... a real staple at rolling stuff yeah. for years. Are you a friend of his still? Yeah. yeah, Yeah, very much so. Now, in terms of your personal life, you made a tremendous shift midway through. Yes. I mean, that's it. Like, when I was looking at the book and I was thinking about it, it just seems like you just uh, almost made a decision to to do this part of your life differently. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't,
1: uh, you know, desperate to come out of the closet or in agony or these things you read about. and. I just, you know, I, I knew I I was gay or bisexual, whatever you call it, for years. You're born that way. Yeah. I didn't find it really an impediment to my life or yeah. how I was living my life, or and I I was married, and I had three kids, and we had wonderful homes, and then, you know, just exactly a wonderful life. You yeah. Know? Uh, but then I fell in love with somebody else. Yeah. And uh, you know, and it made it made complete sense, and it kind of. You, it, you know, different in that way, in that which you had this other kind of, you know, the the sexual component became different and, yeah. and more fulfilling in its way, and yeah. went on and had three more kids. Yeah, and um, how did that? How did you do that? Uh,
0: through surrogacy. So you, you, they're your kids. They're dad? our kids. Yeah. Yeah. You had two. He had two, and you had one. Um, we, no, we you had three know? together.
1: Okay. And, no, but I mean,
0: whose sperm got used? How do? Well, how's I'm that work? Your business. <laughs> I can just look at the kids and guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's 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 <laughs> you're gonna have to do. Um, and um, so we've got, you know, we live we're we're very we live close by the two families. Yeah, the kids are all intermingled and being raised together There's and a,
0: they're much older right the, uh, the, older the kids batch. are in their 30s and these yeah. kids are teenagers that's exciting though and for everybody it's fun
1: everybody loves it it's, yeah it's total
0: fun and you your know. ex-wife's all right Every, yeah yeah so everybody yeah. gets along
1: everybody gets along great you know, <laughs> yeah. it's nice and not cursed knock on wood yeah but um yeah it's turned out just great i'm turned out very lucky it was a tough thing to do it was very tough on my wife yeah and it had and it was, hard on the older kids for a while yeah they adapt quickly but you know it's the right thing for
0: everybody yeah and where do you spend better. most of your time
1: uh i l- live in new york and in long island the end of long island montauk yeah and try and spend as much time there as possible it's pretty out there huh? yeah it's gorgeous and it's the beach and it's yeah, the nature, yeah yeah, yeah. And, you know and the new york city is wonderful but it's pretty dirty and there's a boy the world the difference between waking up and,
0: Man that, and waking mm-hmm. up on you never looking out the ocean. Yeah, it's pretty. So like, now as you get older and and you're hobbled now, <laughs> how you know the hoblet? Yeah, the hobwit. Do you uh, do you look back with any particular uh, sp- you know specific nostalgia about the past? That you, you, you do you do you have any regrets? Well, I I don't really. Have any basic full regrets so Those things I changed. I
1: mean I'd be happy to have saved all that money and not use the cocaine and wasted all that time. Yeah, or, uh, there are a couple of people that I hired I wish I hadn't hired. Oh yeah. Disasters. But in the course of building a business, you go through people to find out who's right and who's yeah. wrong. There's a couple of articles that could've been better, a couple that shouldn't have been published, stuff like that. But you know, overall, no, I, I don't. I mean, I had a great life, I've had a wonderful time I'm still alive and got great kids and yeah. the, you know the the money and the reward to be able to you know live comfortably and and still enjoy the same things i met amazing people throughout my life saw amazing music participated in amazing times both socially and ama- with seeing you know and in and major political too. parts of american life i mean having a small tiny voice but tiny but still a voice in national affairs and the direction of the country and, are you
0: concerned about that now
1: oh yeah i mean it's the yeah, yeah, it's the overwhelming issue of the time. It's really climate change, and, yeah. and that, that ties straight to politics. And fascism. Well, you know, it straight, ties straight to that. I mean, I don't think you would have this climate issue if you didn't have fascism. If you yeah. didn't have the, the state under the control of these wealthy, wealthy, yeah. wealthy, multi-billionaires yeah. and internationally. So, I mean, I think that if you had a truly democratic society representing the will of people now— yeah you wouldn't have you would have we would have solutions for climate change because the demand for this none people the average person doesn't want dirty water dirty air and sure. see everything eroded but yeah. rich people don't seem to Certain many, very wealthy people, oil companies don 't give a shit it's weird, right, yeah, I mean w- w- where are they going to do with their money? Where are they going to spend it by the way in in on the Arctic circle? what stores yeah. are going to be left
0: well yeah how do <laughs> you how do you sort of account for that as a guy who's who's been around as long as you have where are they that disconnected from life or have they rationalized it are they are they rationalizing well, well you- they surely they rationalize it, and
1: then they and they really want to believe that the science is uncertain, or they rationalize it in terms of, well, it'll just be a little erosion or this. Right, right. You know, you, you come to some type of justification to live with yourself, but the basic fact is that they're greedy. Yeah. You know, and it, the money and the power means more to them. It's like, what are you gonna do with a billion dollars? But what are you gonna do with a hundred billion dollars? Yeah. And what are you gonna, I, don't I know. mean, and it's greed. And it's the same thing that supports Trump. It's not just, the crazy people, the religious fanatics, yeah. or something like that. You know, it's the wealthy people, like the Koch brothers, who finance this yeah, stuff because sure. they don't want their taxes. They don't want ta- their taxes to go. And it's it's greed. It's a this disease. Yeah, yeah, I think in sure. my estimation. It's that's uh, yeah. Very and I know a lot of people who got the are wealthy at that level. Yeah, and, you know, some of them are very nice, but it's hard to say. What do you? Why? Yeah, Why, yeah. I,
0: I don't know. where does it end? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah.
1: for myself, I feel you know very satisfied. I, I, I mean, I I still feel active in politics and bitching about it all the time. Yeah, I would love to have Rolling Stone back to give me a voice of it, but that that it doesn't work that way anymore. You know, it's right. so all on the internet and it's fast breaking news and sure. You know, yeah. we used to do deep analysis
0: and behind the scenes. Sure, yeah,
1: move things every hour, but. I think it's coming around.
0: Right? Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like I was I was thinking about Rolling Stone in my life, and there was one. <clears throat> it's weird what moves people, but I remember a few years ago I had to go find that piece that somebody wrote in Rolling Stone about John Holmes. Oh yeah, do you remember that? That I, was the porn star here in LA, yeah. right? Yeah, I think I think McCartney was on the cover, but I right. just remember the article being so disturbing, and it's sort of like that what that whole movie was about, and it really was, you know. Indicative of an era and, and, and Los Angeles at a time yeah. is quite a piece, man. Thank you. We did a lot of great journalism. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. cultural
1: stuff, yeah. you know, which is forgotten like that. I mean, yeah. and weird stories for me, but it was the era of Jesus freaks and yeah. cults, and then uh, there's so much good stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Good life. Uh, good talking to you.
0: Yeah, thank you, Mark. There you go, Jan Wenner. The memoir, Like a Rolling Stone, is now available. Uh, I thought that went pretty well. Hang out for a minute, if you will, and I'll tell you how you can ask me anything. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, if you want to send me a question for the Ask Mark Anything episode we're posting next week on the Full Marin, go to the link in the episode description. That's the part of this episode on your podcast player where it says all the stuff about today's show. I'll answer your questions and we'll post it as bonus content for Full Marin subscribers next week. Get the link to subscribe in the episode description as well. Next week, Zon McLaren from Reservation Dogs is on Monday and... Uh, Bela Fleck, the banjo guy, is on Thursday, and we play. It's been a while since uh, I've recorded anyone in here, but we played a little bit. Tonight, I'm in Livermore, California at the Bankhead Theater. And tomorrow, Friday, I'm in Carmel-by-the-Sea, California at the Sunset Center. In two weeks, I'll be in London doing a live WTF at the Bloomsbury Theater on Wednesday, October 19th, with comedian and writer David Baddiel. Tickets for that are on sale now. Then I've got stand-up shows at the Bloomsbury on Saturday and Sunday, October 22nd and 23rd. Dublin, Ireland, I'm at Vicker Street on Wednesday, October 26th. Then in November, I'm in Oklahoma City, Dallas, San Antonio houston long beach california eugene oregon and bend oregon san antonio small room added a show you might want to get on that if you want to get on that in december i'm in asheville north carolina also added a show if you want to get on that you should get on that and nashville tennessee and my hbo special taping is a town hall in new york city on thursday december 8th go to wtfpod.com tour for all dates and ticket info okay Let's play it out. Monkey and the find of cat angels everywhere.